0: All right, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. That's on page 24 of the Pew Bible. Matthew 22, it's going to be verses 41 through 46. All right, Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions.
1: All right, am I on here? That's a yes, I guess. All right, let's pray. Lord, we pause to acknowledge you, Lord, as gracious, supreme over all, Lord. We pause to thank you, to praise you. Lord, we we have thus far worshipped you in many ways, Lord, and we are We are just blessed beyond measure, Lord. Thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for just the ability to get together to worship you, Lord God, to uh, uphold your word as true, as a guide to us, Lord God. I am thankful. I am humbled, Lord, uh, by the opportunity. uh, But certainly, Lord, I know that you have something for us here. I pray that we, we would have open hearts, soft hearts, Lord, and that you would uh, just do a work in us today through your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good afternoon to you. Uh, I've entitled my sermon this afternoon. I almost said morning. Afternoon. The Savior stands before you. The Savior stands before you. If you're taking notes, I'll be pausing throughout. I am a teacher, after all, so... um, I might be pausing throughout, and uh, I think one of my students is back there, possibly. (laughs) So again, The Savior Stands Before You is the title of the sermon, uh, and as Katie read, it will be coming from Matthew 22, 41 to 46. Now, uh, as the time has gone leading up to today, uh, I've uh, studied, uh, wrestled with the text, and uh, very early on, uh, I was quickly reminded of a different text. Again, today we'll be in Matthew 22. But upon starting with that, uh, I was quickly turned to the book of Exodus. Uh, It's arguably my favorite book. Uh, I love Exodus. How epic it is, and the story of the Exodus there in like Exodus 12, 13, 14, when they're delivered, when the Israelites are delivered. Now. The reason why I turned there, why my mind turned there, was because of a peculiar verse, peculiar or challenging verse, and that's verse 8 from uh, Exodus 14. The verse says, And the Lord God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. The Lord God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Uh, Think about that. How is that possible? And oftentimes in my classroom, I'll get some hands that go up and say, How, is that fair? How does God harden the heart of a man? Well, like many things in uh, principles, passages in Scripture, you have to take a look at the whole of Scripture in order to give you some insight. And uh, that helps. Now, there's a couple ways to answer that question, how does God harden the heart of, uh, of a man, in this case Pharaoh. There's a couple ways, and I'm going to attempt here. I'll give you an illustration, uh, and I'll give you some evidence from the text preceding Exodus 14. The illustration involves clay and pottery. Uh, it, has anyone ever worked with clay or pottery out there? Uh, my wife has, so I have a little bit of an insight to that. Uh, so my understanding is you go to the pottery place, or maybe you do it at home, I don't, I'm not sure, and uh, you, you mold whatever it is that you're molding. And then uh, a very important step uh, at the end is for it to dry, uh, to dry adequately. So there's a couple ways to do that. You could put it in the oven with extreme heat, kind of zap it, uh, and it's solidified. It's dry. It's hardened. Or, and I think this is the way Becky uh, did hers, you let it out. I think she she left and came back a few days afterwards. Uh, You let the air hit it, and that's how uh, the the clay hardens. So two different ways. One, extreme heat, just right away, and the other one, uh, over time, kind of let it be, the air will hit it, and it will harden. In that way, when it comes to a hardened heart, uh, God does not, does not zap with extreme heat, so to speak. Uh, he just hardens your heart. It's more like God lets you be, and really this reminds me of Romans chapter 1, where God just lets us be in our sin. Let's us have our choices, and over time, a heart is hardened. I think that, and I, you know, I believe in that. I believe in that. You know, long time, over time, uh, we harden our, our own hearts. Now, the other bit of evidence that I would turn to is, again, the preceding chapters, the plagues. The plagues are actually, you know, you may, you may be familiar with the plagues. Uh, I think they start around Exodus 4 uh, all the way to 10 or 11. And uh, we might memorize these uh, in Sunday school, Uh, uh, blood and boils and hail and locusts and gnats, right? Uh, But the plagues are actually really important. Uh, They they say a lot about God. Uh, Over and over again, the the plagues uh, were essentially communicating the power of God, And over and over again, if we go back to Pharaoh and his hardened heart, over and over again, every plague, every plea to let his people go, to let God's people go, he himself was hardening his own heart. He was faced, and I I like to envision it this way, he was faced with the power, with the might, with the supremacy of God every time. And in his rebellious heart, he was hardening, hardening himself, his heart. Um, you know, Robert Mounts puts it this way, truth resisted hardens the heart. Truth resisted hardens the heart. Now, obviously that's Exodus, right? And we are in Matthew 22 today. It's a very similar scene. Uh, and we'll go back to the, te- uh, to the context a little bit in the chapter. But over and over again, these religious leaders, Pharisees in our case for today, are faced with Jesus. He's answering these, uh, their questions, and over and over again, their hardened hearts are preventing them from believing. Uh, so in that way, it's, it's very similar. It's the reason why I was reminded of Exodus 14, uh, because Jesus is standing, again, Jesus is standing right in front of them, and uh, again and again, they're rebelling, uh, and they are refusing uh, the Messiah who was standing right in front of them. Now, in our text, Jesus is going to ask a very key question. And this key question I want us today to keep in the forefront of our mind. The question is, uh, Katie read it, who is the Christ? Who is the Christ? It's a question that I think was going to get at the heart of the issue with the Pharisees, with these religious leaders. Uh, And it's a question that I want us to, to consider as well this morning. So, Let's go to the text, uh, again, Matthew 22. And I want to cover the context, so the whole chapter. I'll do it very quickly, don't worry, uh, to kind of lead us to where we're going today. Now, I pause here because I want to say just a small little word about expositional preaching. Expositional preaching, verse by verse chapter by chapter, which is what we've been doing in the book of Matthew. I don't know about you guys, but I've been very blessed with this. Um, To me, expositional preaching is basically saying to God, God, you wrote your word, you inspired your word, you laid it out in in the way that you wanted it to be laid out, and here here I sit underneath of your word, what do you have for me? Uh, and I love that. I love uh, today he has these six verses for us. Um, so I've been very blessed with the way uh, we've been going through the book of Matthew. So I want to take a look at the context of the chapter, uh, in chapter 22. So the first 14 verses, uh, Tim preached to us about three or four weeks ago. Uh, and it was a parable, a parable of a wedding feast. Uh, there's many uh, allusions to feast, wedding feast in the Bible. Uh, and essentially, the master of the house sent his servants out. Uh, they weren't received very well. Uh, and then he sends them out again. And then they gather a lot of people that come into the feast. Now, uh, I think the text says good people and bad people. Uh, and the master of the house comes in and identifies someone who is not, wedding, uh, not wearing the wedding garments. You guys remember this? This was like three or four weeks ago. Uh, and I love that. For many reasons, because that is a reoccurring theme throughout all of Scripture. This idea that in Galatians 3.27, it says we must put on Christ. We must be robed with his righteousness. It's found all throughout Scripture. Uh, again, I think Dan mentioned this, that within our own works, within our own garments, our own coverings, we just don't measure up. And in this beautiful parable, we see that this man, not, wedding, not wearing the wedding garments, Um, what happens to him? And this, we spent a little time with this. He's bound, and then he's thrown into a place of desolation, of punishment, Um, and it it was a reality, and we paused to really consider that. The anger, or should I say the wrath, the idea that there must be punishment is something that belongs within the Christian faith, and we, we, uh, we pondered that. for for a while, uh, the, you know, the severity of that, the the reality of that. Then we move to verses 15 and 22. I think our brother uh, Rick preached this. Uh, 15 to 22, Jesus' mission is heavenly, not earthly, or political. In this case, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians team up. Naturally, in reality, they were enemies, but to get at Jesus in Matthew 22, they kind of team up. And they bring to him something that's pretty popular, uh, this idea of the taxes. Who do, Should we pay taxes? And essentially, Jesus disarms them and their attacks. He says, give to Caesar what is his uh, and give to God what belongs to him, your life, right? And in the last verse, verse 22, it says, when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So, Jesus disarms their attacks. Now, in verses 23 to 33, we learned that our God is the God of the living. So, in this case, the Sadducees come at him. And I'm doing this purposefully because attack after attack, encounter after encounter with Jesus, and uh, their hearts are hardened. In this case, 23 to 33, our God is the God of the living the Sadducees come to, him, to Jesus and they pose this somewhat ridiculous um, theoretical um, situation where, uh, again, they're questioning this idea of the resurrection. If a woman marries a man, the man dies, uh, and then uh, the brother of the man marries her, and then like six brothers or so, whose wife will she be in heaven? And Jesus really with his answer really exposes their misunderstanding of what the resurrection is and really their misunderstanding of scripture itself. He quotes Exodus 3, uh, Moses in the burning bush, where uh, it says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense. This This idea of the resurrection is a reality. And those who are robed in his righteousness, so to speak, will live on forever. It's a reality. Uh, Again, exposing the Sadducees. Now, uh, the next passage, 34 to 40, was last week. Tim spoke to us. 34 to 40, essentially the main point is that key lime pie is the best, right? (laughs) I had to get that in there. I had to get that. Were you guys here last week? Everybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, My mother-in-law is here, and I think she's a fan of key lime pie as well. Uh, But no, that was not the main point, though. Tim spent a little time on that. Uh, (laughs) By little, I mean like 10 seconds. (laughs) Uh, Essentially, again, religious leaders come to him and say, which is the greatest command? And you know, many of us could probably quote this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And, uh, and Jesus quotes this, and really the question that, that really challenged me last week was, sure, we may know it, we, mo- we may be able to quote it, but is our life living it? Uh, the fact that, that God, that I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Now, we were challenged. It's uh, in some ways impossible to do that, but I think, obviously, we need to shoot for that. We need to still aim for that. And then... Uh, Tim went on to give us some reasons. Uh, He is worthy to love because he is loving and lovely. You guys remember that? He is worthy to love because he is loving and lovely. And we finished last week uh, really considering the excellency of Jesus Christ. And that's where we are. Um, That's where we are for now. Now today, again, 41 to 46 is where we're headed And uh, now Jesus will ask the questions. So far, the attacks have been coming at him. Now he himself is going to ask a question. My, how the turns have tabled. I mean, the tables have turned. That was for Becky, yes. Uh, So, verse 41, Uh, if you could turn there. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I want to remind you that this is Jesus. So he probably has a reason as to why he's starting this way. Uh, We'll see as we continue here, he's setting them up in a way. But also, he's asking this question because this is, uh, I've considered it and maybe put it this way, this is the point of reference. This is the question. Who is the Christ? And if you consider the, the text leading up to this, it was very clear that their understanding of Jesus, uh, of the Christ, was, uh, was way off. Uh, this idea, and I, I want to say that we, are, that we may be like that at times. Uh, believers, unbelievers, we may lose track of that. Uh, again, who is the Christ? This is the reference point. This is a question that defines us, that gives us an identity in many ways. And it's a question that for a person such as a Pharisee, this was troubling. Uh, A religious leader, an educated person, a smart person, a clever person. This was a stumbling block to them. And we see that that's a reality in so many cases uh, for people in general. Uh, You know... Uh, Romans nine thirty two uses that term when Paul says that Jesus is a stumbling block, something we can't get over. What about him, is is hard to relent to? Well, you know, our uh, our human default mode is to to earn our righteousness, to to um, manufacture. Are standing before those around us, before even God Almighty, and it's something that even in the first two humans in existence, uh, Adam and Eve, we see their behavior give us a picture of that. I don't know if you remember, but in Genesis three, essentially, uh, Adam and Eve sin, right? And what is their first? What is the first thing that they do? They they sew fig leaves together. Uh, to cover up their, you know, to cover up their shame, which really was indicative not only of their outer, you know, their exterior, but their, their inside. They felt inadequate. They felt shame. And, you know, they sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. And then, if you, uh, if you read it too quickly, you might miss this, that in verse 21 of Genesis 3, uh, God himself um, sacrifices an animal. First, first occurrence of that. Uh, and it says to, to properly clothe them uh, with animal skins. Even there, we get this beautiful picture. Man's attempt, and we, you know, I, I like to use this term, uh, human default mode, right? Our, our, what, we, what we default to is self-righteousness. We earn. But even right there in Genesis 3, we see, you know, this beautiful picture that there must be a sacrifice to properly clothe us, which goes with that parable, right? So, again, Jesus is getting at the heart of what the issue is, issue is and that, that is that your righteousness, your standing, comes from something outside of yourselves. And this is a reality. Now, <clears throat> verse 42, we see their response. Their response, um, I think, was... Uh, could be, essentially, Jesus knew what they were going to say. Verse 42, they said to him, the son of David. Again, the question is, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Uh, they said, verse 42, the son of David. Now, this was an acceptable answer. It's a true answer, right? But it's an answer that falls short, miserably short. Now, let's consider why they would answer uh, Jesus this way. Firstly, genealogies, especially in Jewish tradition, genealogies establish a person's heritage, their inheritance, their, their legitimacy, and their rights. For instance, in Matthew 1, we see a genealogy there, descendant of a descendant of a descendant, right? And you could trace it back, it was historical, it was, an ast- I don't know if astute, but uh, it was a knowledgeable answer, right? And along with that, again, more history and theology for a Jewish person, the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel 7. From David would come the king to rule all. Now, this was an earthly powerful king as far as how the Jews understood it. So genealogies, Davidic covenant um, found in 2 Samuel 7, these were all reasons why they would answer this way. Essentially, the Pharisees' response to the question of, what do you think about the Christ or of the Messiah, whose son is he, tells us that they know Scripture. They know their history. They know it really well. It's clear that the Pharisees are giving us an example of a grave mistake, of a grave mistake that comes uh, when it comes to Scripture. For Scripture, if you're taking notes, Scripture is not only meant to inform us, but to form us. Scripture is not only meant to inform us, but to form us, to form our hearts, to melt our hearts, so that we would bow to the king who was standing right in front of them, right? The Savior stands in front of you. And they were missing it, making this grave mistake. And I want to say, I, I want to warn us of that mistake, Um, to not miss Jesus Christ as he clearly reveals himself, just as he did with the plagues, just as he was doing with them in Matthew 22. Let's not miss them. Now, there is a follow-up question to this, and it gets a little complex. So in verse 43, Jesus kind of comes back and he says, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, verse 45, how is he his son? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Essentially, he is asking, why does David call his son Lord? Kind of doesn't make sense. Now, again, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Is this Messiah his son or is he his Lord? Which one is it? How can a son be Lord over his father? Again, as we ask these questions, it's almost like an earthly way of looking at things, right? And this is the brilliance of how Jesus is exposing their lack of understanding of the scriptures. What Jesus is claiming is that he is both David's son and David's Lord. You see that? okay? Uh, What Jesus is claiming is that he is both David's son and David's Lord. He is the human and divine Christ Messiah. The Messiah is more than just a mere human descendant of David, which was their understanding, the Pharisees. More importantly, he is the savior and conqueror of the world, and he was standing right in front of them. A misunderstanding, a grave misunderstanding, even an unwilling misunderstanding here. Now, another point um, that I think is worthy is Psalm 110 itself. Psalm 110 is what Jesus uses here. He quotes Psalm 110, which was a psalm that the Jews would have been very familiar with. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It looks forward to the future Messiah. In quoting this psalm, Jesus is again exposing the Pharisees' lack of understanding of the scriptures. For, Expecting for the Messiah to be merely a political ruler who would reign in their immediate physical realm was a complete and utter misunderstanding of the psalm. Psalm 110 looks beyond itself. I love that. Psalm 110 looks beyond the achievements of a mere human king, a political king, that if you take into consideration the context of Uh, The time when Jesus is speaking this, uh, how they were being ruled by Gentiles by the Romans—that's what they were expecting. But again, that's that's falling short as to what the Psalm Psalm one ten is talking about. Uh, This king being talked about is King Jesus. It was the man who was standing right in front of them, yet they were failing to see him. uh, Him who was standing. There, The Davidic king who would redeem all by his life, death, and resurrection. resurrection, And the one uh, who the great king David is claiming would be his Lord. David is pointing beyond himself in Psalm 110. It's not me. Look beyond me uh, to the great king Jesus. Now, I'll pause here. And really, if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here, a redeemed, uh, justified believer in Jesus Christ, and you you understand, you submit to the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, the inspiration of Scripture by God, we may very well, well here infer, kind of go farther. What exactly is Jesus saying to these Pharisees? Let me put it this way. What Jesus is saying is, I am the Messiah descended from David. I am this king who will sit at the right hand of the Father and I am David's Lord. That's what he's saying to them. You should be bowing to me as Lord. Yet, your rebellion, your disrespect, your skepticism, your cynicism is preventing you from really seeing who I am, the Savior. You're missing it. All this from a hardened heart. I love the way the Expositor's Bible puts it. It says this, and I quote, If only they would take their ideas of the Christ from the Scriptures, which were their boast, they could not fail to see him standing now before them. For we must remember that they had not only the words he spoke to guide them, they had before them the Messiah himself. Man, I wonder what that was like. With the, light, with the light of heaven in his eyes, with the love of God in his face, and had they had any love for the light, they would have recognized him then. They would have seen in him whom they had often heard of as David's son, the Lord of David, and therefore the Lord of the temple and the heavenly king of Israel. The Savior was standing before them. Now... <clears throat> This reminds me, again, of a different passage, really a very similar passage, where Jesus, again, is combating. He's he's receiving a lot of attacks. Uh, It's in John chapter 5. And in John 5, Jesus is giving a lot of proofs, a lot of evidence to support his claim, the claim that he was the Son of God, right? He begins by saying, John the Baptist John the Baptist, this guy who uh, has a great following, well-respected, he claims that I'm the one. Similar to what David was doing in Psalm 110, right? Look beyond him. So John the Baptist is proof that I am the Son of God, Jesus was saying in John chapter 5. Then he goes on and he says, My miracles, the signs that I've been making happen, they claim, they are proof that I am the one. And then thirdly, he says... The scripture, the word of God, it also claims that I'm the one, right? Very similar to the exchanges uh, from uh, Matthew 22. Then in John 5:39 and 40, it says this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that scripture is not the end, but simply the means by which to see the true end, which is Jesus Christ. Scripture is not the end, but simply the means by which to see the true end, which is Jesus Christ. This was a problem. This was an issue for uh, the Pharisees, these uh, educated, uh, knowledgeable people. They thought, mistakenly thought, that their efforts, their righteousness, by their knowledge of Scripture, was what earned them a right standing before before God, King Jesus. Now, as I, earlier today, I was looking through my notes, preparing, and I had a thought after this, knowing that there was going to be some fourth to sixth graders in here. Because, uh, I know most of the fourth to sixth graders. Some of them are my kids, right? I think, I think this is a danger for, for you guys as well. Uh, kids are smart. Uh, kids can remember things. Kids can memorize things. Um, don't mistake knowing Scripture for knowing Jesus Christ. Um, and I get a little emotional about that because... Again, I have kids of my own. And I want them to take a hold of their faith. Because, um, you know, knowing scripture, doing well in Sunday school class, doing well at, you know, a private school, you know, it's good. It's socially very acceptable. Makes you feel very good about yourself. But the relent, the melting of the heart spoken of here, is, is something way different. It's way different. So I want to challenge the young ones in here. Uh, consider that. Consider that. Now, as we, we've already done, and we've already pivoted to a bit of reflection and application with what I just said, but I want to go further for all of us. By the way, that mistake to the little ones, we can make that mistake as well. And I want to go deeper with that. The key question that I've been... Um, asking you to keep in the forefront of your mind, is who is the Christ? And that, again, that might be the most important question you ask yourself, right? But I want to give that question a pause just for some reflection, some application, and I want to introduce a second question to you. The question is, how much are you, how much are we like the Pharisees? How much are we like the Pharisees? A connecting question to dig a little deeper here is is this. Is it simply about what you've been taught or is it about what you treasure? Is it simply about what you've been taught or is it about what you treasure? Two different conditions, two different hearts there. Next question is, is it more about an informed mind or is it more about an inflamed heart? Is it more about an informed mind or is it more about an inflamed heart? These are the two, uh, two contrasts here, two situations, two conditions, two heart conditions that we're talking about. Now, again, I want to go kind of deeper with this. And um, I want to pose a bit of a fable for you, uh, a fable that I've been saying for years uh, that I love. So entertain me here for a second as we go deeper into these, this idea of two different types of hearts, okay? Now, again, entertain me. Be patient with me, okay? There once was a great king. There once was a great king, and then this, uh, this king had this great and vast flourishing kingdom. Picture it, right? Uh, and in this kingdom was a small little plot of land where, where a carrot farmer did his thing. You know, every, every day he would go out. This guy specialized in carrots. He knew everything about it, about carrots. And one morning he woke up and he went to um, pick carrots out of the ground. I don't know much about farming, but I do know this fable. And he reaches down and he pulls out this enormous beautiful carrot, right? And he says to himself, oh my goodness, this is, this is an amazing carrot. This is the healthiest, most amazing carrot I've ever seen. Um, Man, I think, I think that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it to the king and I'm going to gift this to the king. So he gets the carrot, he puts it in his wagon, he goes to the king's palace, knocks on the door, whatever you do at a palace, uh, and he walks in uh, into this great hall where the king is seated at his throne. It must have been kind of a weird sight, right, carrying this huge carrot. He goes to the king and he says, hello, uh, king. Uh, I don't think you know me, but I specialize in carrots, and this morning I picked this amazing, beautiful carrot, and I would like to gift it to you. And the king responds uh, responds this way. He says, oh my goodness, yes, this is the biggest carrot I've, I've seen. This is amazing. This is this is awesome. Thank you so much, the king said. Then he goes on and he says, you know what? I think I'm going to give you a reward for this. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to give you 20 acres of land so that you may prosper and grow more carrots. And the carrot farmer guy, he said, wow, this is amazing. I never thought this. This is so great. Thank you so much. Now, while this was going on, there was someone else in the other room who was overhearing the whole situation, and this guy was clever, right? He said, oh, man, this is crazy. You know, I've got a bunch of horses back in my house because I specialize in horses. I'm going to go and get a beautiful, amazing horse. I'm going to bring it in here to see what I get. So he goes to his farm, ranch, whatever it is, and he picks out this amazing, beautiful stallion. You know how stallions can be kind of striking, right, horses in general. He brings it to the king's palace. He goes into the great hall where the king is seated at his throne. must have been a sight. And uh, he goes to the king and says, I don't think you know who I am, but I specialize in horses. I have tons of them, and I have this beautiful one here for you. I'd like to gift it to you. Now the king responds this way. He says, oh, wow, this is a beautiful horse. This is amazing. Uh, Man, I've seen such a beautiful horse. Thank you so much goodbye and then the horse guy he says well wait a minute hold on I was here the other day and you know that carrot guy with that ridiculous carrot he brought you a carrot and you gave him all this land how about me then the king says this and here's the punchline here and this as silly as it is it kind of melts me a little bit because the king responds this way he says yes I know I gave him that land. But he was giving me the carrot. You are giving yourself the horse. You get that? He was giving me the carrot. You are giving yourself the horse. Two different hearts. Two different conditions. One, I mean, who who does that? You know, when you go to work, you're working and you're producing, you know, this is for the Lord. I revere the Lord. I bend my knee to the Lord and the other one I use the Lord the Lord is not the end for me he's simply the means by which the true end which is my selfish ambitions right two different hearts treating the king very differently I urge you to revere the king to love the king to bend your knee for the king now I have a more biblical um, example of this in um, the parable of the prodigal son. And in this parable, we see again two different hearts. And I, as I start to conclude here, um, I want you to consider this. Consider this. Again, the question is how much are you like the Pharisees? How much are you like the Pharisees? Your heart condition. The, the story of the prodigal son is one that is very famous. Many of you guys will probably could tell it from beginning to end. The chapter, Luke 15, begins by telling us the audience of the parables. Lost coin, lost sheep, which we considered earlier today, and then the lost son. The, the younger son essentially disrespects the father, and the father uh, relents and says, You want the money? Uh, essentially what the younger son was saying, I'd rather you be dead. I just care about your money. Can I just have it? He gives him the money. He goes off and spends it wildly. You guys familiar? You guys know the parable, right? Then, and many will say that the parable is really about the elder son, right? Because the, um, well, let me wait on that. The, uh, the, the younger son does come back, right? Uh, and the father receives him. He's looking out for him. He runs to him. He throws him this feast. He kills the fattened calf. There's rejoicing, as the parable that Dan uh, shared with us, right? There's rejoicing because a lost soul has been found. And then the elder son comes near. And with everything that he said, his 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 words, his attitude, his disposition, he reveals his true heart. He says, you never gave me anything. I've been doing all this stuff for you. Uh, He's indignant. He's resentful, right? Um, Here again, we have a great example of a heart that has been hardened, although he was near to the father, right? But he was way off, it was way off and you could argue that these pharisees in Matthew 22 you know they were at the temple probably a lot you know they knew the scriptures similar to us being here now but we can be near yet very far away because it's a matter of the heart now i love the way that henry Nguyen puts it in his book the return of the prodigal son he puts it this way The lostness of the elder son, however, is much harder to identify. After all, he did all the right things. He was obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, and hard-working. People respected him, admired him, praised him, and likely considered considered him a model son. Outwardly, the elder son was faultless. But when confronted by his father's joy at the return of his younger brother, a dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly, there becomes glaringly visible a resentful, proud, unkind, selfish person, one that had remained deeply hidden, even though it had been growing stronger and more powerful over the years. So which one are you? Is your heart soft? Does it melt because of Jesus Christ, the great King? Or is it hardened, proud, self righteous? You know, over and over again, just like in Exodus 14, we behold his might. Just like in Matthew 22, man, what it must have been like to have Jesus speak to you. It's there. It's standing in front of you. Will you take his gift? Will you be melted by his gift of grace? Consider that as we bow our heads now. Dear Lord, as I often say, I'm the first one in line. I'm the first one in line to be held accountable, for I know my sins Lord God, Lord, you are good, just as you've been good, and you reveal yourself in, those, in that parable. You look for us. Your arm is outstretched to find us, Lord. You take our disrespect, and you're still there. Lord, I pray that the hearts that are here inside this room, that they would relent, that they would be melted by your grace, Lord God. I pray for that. Thank you that over and over again you remind us, you remind us of your love for us, Lord. Let us behold you and be uh, melted by your love for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen.